As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everyone, hope you're having a great weekend. We are coming to you a little bit early this week with the mailbag edition of the Athletic Baseball Show, recording on the eve of the winter meetings. I'm Tim McMaster along with Ken Rosenthal. We are going to get you ready for what is hopefully a crazy week in San Diego. It's obviously one of the busiest weeks of the year for Ken, so I appreciate you, Ken, taking some time, finding the time in your schedule to answer some of these mailbag questions. Thank you so much. Well, Tim, thank you. And let's hope we can get through this uninterrupted. I cannot guarantee that. Yeah, it's certainly no guarantees. All right. Well, as we record this, the money has already started to flow. Um, there's been some some minor deals and that sort of thing and some moderate deals. But then Friday night, Jacob deGrom agreeing on a five-year, $185 million deal with a club option for a sixth year with the Texas Rangers. Uh, the Mets reportedly had a three-year deal worth more money per year, but just three years on the table. Uh, seems like a pretty good deal for a 30-year-old DeGrom. I'm not sure about a 34-year-old DeGrom with some injury history, but we will see how this plays out. Well, absolutely, Tim. And I wrote about this and just the risk involved and the reward involved too. And we all know this is one of the best pitchers of our generation, for sure, the best pitcher in the game right now. But the amount of money, the length of the contract, it was shocking. But frankly, that deal was not the only one that has surprised me this offseason, virtually every deal has surprised me in terms of how rich the contracts have been. Matthew Boyd, and I love Matthew Boyd, great guy, great stories, come back from some difficult injuries. He pitched 13 and a third innings last season, and he got $10 million. This is happening over and over again. Not surprising in the sense that in the first year of a CBA, we've talked about this, Money generally gets spent in a big way. Owners are confident that labor peace will be insured for the next five years or so. They feel good about spending money. And clearly, this is what is going on right now. And what this could lead to at the winter meetings, well, there's no other way to put it. It could lead to a spending orgy. Now, we've seen these kinds of things happen in the past at the meetings. 2019, 
when there was not a new CBA. Remember what happened? Scott Boris went crazy. $324 million for Garrett Cole. $245 million for Steven Strasburg. $245 million for Anthony Rendon. That was an exciting meeting. There was a lot going on besides the Boris deals. And that kind of atmosphere, that electricity that transpires when the money starts flowing, that is what makes a great winter meetings. Now, my all-time favorite, and I'm suspecting this meetings could rival that one, year 2000. Now, in the year 2000, that's a long time ago, and I know some of our listeners probably weren't even alive back then, but that was the year A-Rod signed his first mega deal, the one with the Texas Rangers as a free agent, 10 years, $252 million. But those meetings also included an eight-year, $121 million deal from Mike Hampton. That was the second big deal the Rockies had completed. They had just signed Denny Nagel for $51.5 million. So they're here the Rockies committing $176 million, $172 million to two pitchers. It didn't work out well, of course. It's the Rockies. But if you remember Sandy Alderson <laughs> at the time... He was very critical of that Hampton deal, and Hampton had said something along the lines of he likes the school districts in Colorado, and Sandy Alderson ripped him, and that was just the beginning of the fun. Manny Ramirez at that meeting, eight years, $160 million with the Red Sox, the Indians at the time, not the Guardians yet, they were trying to retain him. There was just a lot going on. Darren Dreifert got $55 million, and of course, the A-Rod deal at the winter meetings in Dallas, signed by the Texas Rangers. That was the granddaddy of them all. So when that kind of atmosphere starts going at the winter meetings, again, it is electric. It is really exciting. And clearly there can be trades involved. There can be all kinds of things going on. But with the environment we have right now, just the way the markets are developing, I expect that we're going to see a good amount of action. Now, on Saturday, I reported that Aaron Judge, his contract is likely to end up at nine years. The Yankees reportedly have offered eight. What happens in free agency? What happens is teams generally add a year to get the player they want. Maybe it ends up being the Yankees. Maybe it ends up being the Giants or some other team. I don't know. But at the same time, Judge, the shortstops, Brandon Nimmo, Carlos Rodon, Justin Verlander, these guys are all out there still. And the Mets, well, we know they're going to respond in some fashion to losing DeGrom. We know the Yankees, whether they get Judge or not, are going to be in the starting pitching market. And if they don't get Judge, they could pivot in any number of ways. We know the Giants are going to be active, Judge or not. The Dodgers, uh, not quite sure what they're going to do, but they always are lurking. This is going to be something else, something else to behold. And I'm really looking forward to it. I don't know that I'm looking forward to exactly the work involved because there's going to be a lot of it. But actually, that's fun, too. 2019 that you mentioned was in San Diego. Really, that was the last like true winter meetings the way we like it, you know, with everybody together and and able to kind of mingle and and talk and all that stuff. Uh, And it's back in San Diego, of course, this year. Same spot and hopefully as much excitement as there was three years ago. Uh, We'll be out there. I'll talk about it at the end of the episode, but we'll be bringing you content all week long from San Diego and the winter meetings. Uh, With that, Ken, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. 
If you want to get involved next time on The Mailbag, you can do it by calling us 646-543-7072 or you can email us the email address tabaseballshow at gmail.com. All right, let's start with an email. It's from Hillel who hit us up with a good question a couple of weeks ago. He has another one. He says, and this is fitting considering the news over the last 24 hours. <laughs> How come starting pitchers get paid so much? Think about Cole and Scherzer and soon to be, well, now DeGrom and soon to be Verlander. If they stay healthy, they make 32 starts per year and managers just can't wait to take them out of the game. So how come playing two thirds of 32 games grants such a high salary, whereas bullpen guys and position players get paid so much less? It's a fair question. But at the same time, anyone who watches baseball understands the value of a great starting pitcher. It sets the tone for you every fifth day, every sixth day in some cases. It can really transform your franchise to have one of the aces. And the identities of those guys, they're special. Verlander, Scherzer, DeGrom, Cole, the guys at the top of the market, at the top of the sport, they have that big an impact. And that's why they get paid the money that they do. A reliever does not pitch as many innings, obviously, and it's not as important. Even the greatest closers, they're generally topping out at, what, $15, $16 million a year because they are relievers. They're not starting pitchers. If they were better pitchers, younger age, they would have been starting pitchers, perhaps. In most cases, actually, that is true. Position players, I would argue that the most valuable position player is as valuable as the most valuable pitcher, but... Maybe it's supply and demand because starting pitchers are such a rare breed and there aren't many great ones, whereas position players, there are several great ones at every position. I'm not exactly sure, but really, these things always come down to supply and demand. They always come down to the significance of the player, the meaning of him to your franchise, and that's what gets these guys paid. In DeGrom's case, and Mets fans can tell you this, When he pitches, it's an event. Pedro Martinez was like that too. So there's an even added element of value to what he brings, to what DeGrom will bring the Texas Rangers. They're going to get bigger crowds on the days he pitches at home. I expect that will happen just as it happened at City Field. It's that much fun to see him pitch. It's that great and, yeah, that impactful. Next question comes from Jake. He says, hey, Ken, I feel like I've heard almost nothing about the possibility of Trey Turner re-signing with the Dodgers, but there's been a fair amount of talk about them being in play for one of the other big top free agent shortstops, Correa, Bogart, Swanson. What gives there? I've heard that Turner prefers going back to the East Coast, but that alone doesn't seem like enough of an explanation. It seems like a pretty good fit on paper and baseball-wise. Am I imagining this, or has Turner resigning in L.A. been essentially ruled out by the media? A couple of things here. I don't think the media, well, generally speaking, can rule out anyone in free agency. I'll speak for myself. I constantly write, negotiations are fluid, crazy things happen in free agency, and fans get tired of it. They say, oh, you're leaving yourself an out. No, I just know that things do turn. I'll give an example before I get into this question. Jacob deGrom, a couple of weeks ago, I heard from some people that the Rangers were kind of scared off by the early prices on the starting pitchers. It might pivot to trades, might pivot to lesser starters. Well, obviously that didn't happen. Things changed. I don't know how they changed. Maybe the owner got involved and said, you know what, let's just do this. 
Maybe at the time the Rangers were sending out those signals because they were serious on DeGrom. Maybe there's something else involved entirely. I don't know. Maybe they got scared off by the prices on the middle guys and just said, eh, let's just go get the top. So things are fluid. Things can change. Things can happen. Now, Trey Turner. It's an interesting question because you don't hear the Dodgers linked to him very often. And in my view, there are two reasons. One, the Dodgers, when they operate in free agency, they generally look for deals. They'll play at the top of the market. They'll investigate every possibility, as many teams do. But what they want, at least currently, is a short-term, high-dollar deal. That's the ideal for them. So four years, big money, they're cool with that. Freddie Freeman, they got last year, that was one of the rare deals that they made that was kind of top of the market. Even that deal had a lot of deferrals. Mookie Betts, they did that as an extension, not in free agency. That deal, great deal for Mookie, but it had a lot of deferrals. It was discounted in that sense. So we generally don't see them act like financial bullies in free agency. They've got the money. They'll spend money, but they're not setting the market in most cases. So with Trey Turner, they're not going to give him eight years at 30 plus, in my opinion. I'd be surprised if they did. Other teams might, and they know that. Now, if the market falls for Turner or any of the other shortstops, for Aaron Judge, which it won't, for any pitcher, yeah, they're good. Maybe Verlander is their guy. Short-term, high-dollar, that would fit. So that's one thing. The other thing, Turner is a speed guy. And the Dodgers are as aware of the actuarial tables as any team in baseball. I'm not sure they feel confident investing in a speed guy long-term. And... Trey Turner's a great player. I love watching Trey Turner play. I think he's really, really good. We all know that. But the Dodgers might see it as someone that they're not quite so sure about. And one other thing to keep in mind with the Dodgers. Who is a free agent after next year? Shohei Otani is a free agent after next year. And maybe that is the guy they ultimately want. Why wouldn't they? He'd be perfect. He's perfect for every team. And ultimately, that just might be the Dodgers' play. And to play into what you just mentioned about if the prices come down to them, Dave Roberts was on Starkville last week with Jason and Doug, and he phrased it a different way, but basically saying the same thing about Turner. He said that Andrew Friedman is always around the backboard. Basically, he's ready to to pick up the scraps to grab the rebound if it doesn't work out somewhere else. So he wasn't seeming to rule out Trey Turner returning to the Dodgers, but but he kind of said exactly what you did, Ken. So, so we've heard it from the team basically as well. And Tim, here's the thing with Turner. Dennis Lynn and I reported last night that he has met twice with the Padres. We know from Jason Stark that he has interest from the Phillies, as do the other shortstops. He is not going to need to settle for a four-year deal from the Dodgers. He's going to get six to eight years, most likely, and at a high average annual value, he's going to get a good deal. So when it comes to distressed assets, that's the Dodgers' preference. I don't see Trey Turner being a distressed asset. Yeah, for sure. All right, next question is a voicemail staying on the West Coast. Hi, Ken. This is Kobe from San Francisco, California. I'm a big Giants fan. I noticed that this team does not find very many players that have been tagged with the qualifying offer. I was just curious about how the qualifying offer affects free agency. Are teams very averse to giving up picks in general for certain types of players? 
and how do clubs behave differently based on their farm systems and their, their talent and their current core overall? Thanks. Love the show. Really good question. And yes, the qualifying offer is a drag on free agency. That is why the Players Association has tried for years to get rid of it. They could have negotiated with baseball and got rid of the qualifying offer in exchange for an international draft. Those talks did not come to fruition, and the system remained in place for the extent of this five-year CBA. The reason it's a drag on free agency is because, yes, teams give up draft picks and also international bonus pool space in most instances. The low-revenue teams that get revenue sharing do not have to give up the international space, but there are generally draft picks involved. And let's look at teams that exceed the luxury tax. There were six last year. And those teams, if they sign a free agent who rejected a qualifying offer, they lose their second and fifth picks in the draft and $1 million in international bonus pool space. So when a team like, let's just say, for instance, the Mets, they make an offer to a free agent with a qualifying offer. They factor that in to their equation. All right, we have to pay this free agent X. We lose the second pick. We lose the fifth pick. And we lose the international bonus pool space. That's why we add them together. That's what we're giving up here. So, sure, it's going to affect things. And it's going to deter teams from signing certain players. Usually... Actually, almost always, the top guys, the judges, the DeGroms, those players, it doesn't matter at all. Teams will sign them. They'll give up the picks. No problem. Hey, we've got the man, judge, DeGrom. We're not worrying about the second and fifth round draft picks. But when you talk about a guy, let's say, for instance, Chris Bassett, okay? Chris Bassett is a really good pitcher. He's not elite. And he is someone that teams might pause over signing because of the qualifying offer attached. Nathan Avaldi, same kind of thing. Martin Perez took the qualifying offer because he felt his market might be depressed by having it attached to him. Jock Peterson, the same thing. It's more difficult for, I don't want to call them mid-level players, because if you get a qualifying offer, you are a really good player. But it's more difficult from the perspective of the less than elite. Those guys have more trouble, and that is where it comes into play. How much does a farm system come into it? Quite a bit at times. If you have a strong farm system, maybe you feel more comfortable giving up the picks. And there are lesser penalties for teams that do not exceed the luxury tax, but you still lose a pick after the second round. There's always a, f a price to pay. stronger the farm system, the more confident you can be doing something like that. The weaker the farm system, eh, the problem becomes a little bit more pronounced. The Astros, for instance, they lost their top two picks in 2020 and 21 as a result of the sign-stealing penalties. The Braves were penalized for a time for their conduct in the international market. They lost picks. This is something, actually, they lost players. This is something that can affect a team's decision. Sure, there's no question about that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, John's a Yankee fan, and he's not thrilled right now coming off the end of the Yankee season. He says, hey, Ken, Frankie Montas and Lou Trevino were significant disappointments from my perspective and a rare miss from Brian Cashman. Why else would Clark Schmidt be closing in the postseason? Can they be counted on in 2023 or flipped elsewhere? And should the Yankees keep Torres? They have a lot of middle infield depth, especially if LeMahieu's healthy. First off, Montas should not be viewed simply by what he did with the Yankees in the period after the trade. That's not fair. He had a right shoulder issue, which he had earlier in the year. He was not necessarily himself. This is a very good major league pitcher when healthy. The Yankees got him for that reason. They're not going to just say, ah, we're going to get rid of him. They don't think like fans do sometimes about the small sample size. They see the bigger picture. That's their job. And they don't overreact to the issues that he had. Trevino actually... From an ERA standpoint, pitched well for the Yankees after coming over. He was not great with Oakland, but did fine with the Yankees. He'll be part of their mix. I don't see them parting with either. Do I see them trying to fortify their rotation, even if they get Judge back? Sure. Do I see them trying to upgrade their bullpen? Yeah, absolutely. But those two guys are not seen as problems. I don't know if they're seen as incredible solutions the way a Justin Verlander would be, but... Montas is a good pitcher, and any thought to the contrary just kind of misses the point. As for Torres, yeah, it's possible they could move him, and there have been teams interested. Certainly, Glaber had a better year last year than the year before, and if they're going to bring in Peraza and Volpe and really include them in the mix, that is something that, yes, the Yankees definitely will look at, particularly if it brings pitching back, I would think. If I were them, I try to move Donaldson too, which I think actually they're trying to do, and get younger in the infield. Get those guys in the mix. Volpe can play not just short, but also third, second. Peraza's more of a pure shortstop. That's where the Yankees see him. But both those guys arguably, well, Peraza in particular, should have been up earlier last year. And Volpe is a guy, we keep hearing about him. He's been hyped to unbelievable measures by the Yankees. He is supposed to be a really good player. So, okay, let's see it. And if the Yankees can get value for Torres, if they can somehow purge Donaldson and use that money in other ways, going with two kids right off the bat might be a little bit of a stretch. I get it. But at some point, hey, you've been waiting for these guys. Mix them in. The Yankees going young. It's such a strange concept. All right, next question from Alex. He says, we have heard very little regarding minor league labor negotiations other than that it seems to be ongoing. Do you have any insights as to how the negotiations are progressing and what major topics are even being discussed? And is there any chance that there's a work stoppage resulting in a delayed start to spring training or the regular season in the minors? As an employee of a minor league team and baseball fan in general, the silence about this is a bit concerning, especially after what happened earlier this year with the Major League Baseball negotiations. I understand your concern as an employee, no question. But at the same time, 
with all due respect, the minor league labor negotiations are not going to be covered as extensively as the major league ones were. It's just not at the same level of interest. And also, they should be, these negotiations, more straightforward than the major league ones were, less complex. It's pretty clear what the issues are. Salary, housing, benefits, all of those things. Now, you can say the same thing for the major leagues, but the major leagues has a much more complex collective bargaining agreement than the minor league should. Now, the way it's been described to me is if the union tries to get some gains that affect the major leagues as well, then that will be a problem. If these negotiations are strictly about the minor leaguers and not, for instance, about the draft, which of course is covered by the major league CBA, then it should be straightforward. It should be something that gets done I know you guys have heard it all before when it comes to labor, but this should not be terribly complex. So as of now, I see no reason for alarm. That could change, of course, but it's just not the same level or should not be at the same level of contentiousness that we saw in the major league negotiations. Well, that sounds like good news for uh, everyone involved. Logan has our last question. He says, I'm 37-year-old, and I had to explain the Ghost Runner to my parents during the regular season. After explaining to them why this atrocity exists and its purpose, they immediately responded, what happened to this sport? I admitted that I hate the rule, but I mentioned that I agree that it would make sense to have a ghost runner starting in the 13th inning, so you give the entire team one last bat around, assuming 9 up, 9 down, rather than starting in the 10th. They actually thought that's not a bad idea, and they didn't have to watch a game, you don't have to watch a game super long still. Doesn't that make more sense? Well, it's certainly something that would be kind of a compromise between fans who like to see real extra innings and fans who might be enamored of the Manfred man, the ghost runner, the automatic runner, whatever you want to call that particular individual at second base at the start of an extra inning. I originally was very much opposed to this. I didn't like it. I like extra innings. I like even when a game goes 18, 19 innings, and then it wrecks a team's pitching staff for a week, just the way that affects things and how you got to play with more urgency, perhaps, to avoid that situation. And when that situation occurs, you have to have the depth to overcome it. That said, at a time when injuries are such a focus and such a prominent issue in the game, I understand and came to embrace the automatic runner because, for one, it ends games quicker and prevents those kinds of long games from occurring, which increases players' exposure to injuries or perhaps vulnerability to injuries. It's, for the sake of the player's health, a good thing. From a strategic standpoint, I also like it. It makes the extra innings interesting. How do you start? How do you manage it? So I have come to accept it. I don't necessarily love it, but I understand why it's in place. I understand why baseball wants it to continue. Could they do something along the lines of what you're suggesting, not doing the automatic rudder until the 12th, 13th inning? Sure, they could. But it seems to me that we're not going backwards on this. And whether we like it or not, it's kind of here to stay. 
All right, great questions again this week. As always, if you want to get involved next time, call us, 646-543-7072, or email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Full week of episodes this week. This is kicking things off. The order's a little off from what you're used to, though. On Monday evening, we'll have the roundtable from San Diego. Uh, Mark, Andy, and Grant will all be there uh, at the Hyatt recording that one. Uh, then on Wednesday morning, you'll get Starkville with Jason from San Diego. Doug will join that show as well. Then the 3-0 show on Thursday, which will kind of have a full recap of what's happened at that point with Britt Eno and DVR. And then finally, DVR and Keith Law on Friday will pretty much recap which prospects were traded, if some were, and give you kind of Keith's take on those trades. So great content all week. Stay with us. And also check out the new YouTube page. We have youtube.com slash at the Athletic Baseball Show. That's the symbol at and the Athletic Baseball Show. We'll have more content there this week as well. When trades go down, we'll try to get short reactions from our writers that are going to be there in San Diego and get those up as well. Ken's going to be helping out when he can also. So tune in all week long on YouTube and also the Athletic Baseball Show audio feed. Uh, Ken, I will see you face-to-face in San Diego in a couple of days. I'm excited about it. Me too, Tim. Thanks a lot. All right. We'll talk to everybody soon.